Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. It's me, Bill T., and we're back from Octo. Last weekend, ran down to Long Beach for the Octo event and had a little booth set up there. Got to see a lot of people that are fans of the podcast and enjoyed listening. Got a lot of good feedback. Also, while I was down there, I did a couple interviews. The first one, which we'll hear today, from Joe Horvath, and I'll go into a little bit of detail on that later. The second one was R.K. Smith from Hot VW's Magazine, uh, formerly of Hot VW's Magazine, photojournalist that's been in the automotive industry for quite a while. Great podcast. That one's coming out next week. But notwithstanding that, this podcast this week is awesome. The first podcast I did this last week was with Joe Horvath out of Hesperia, California. He owns a company called Revmaster that's been around since the very early 60s. Started one of the first remanufacturing engine companies for VW platform motors. Uh, pretty influential, invented tons of stuff that you guys may take for granted. It's a wonderful podcast. He's a fantastic guy, and he's been building aviation motors for the past 35, 40 years. So uh, he's been in the game a long time. He was critically influential in the beginning of uh, Econo Motors and also with Impy. And he's some of the guy, he's the guy you see in some of the background photographs from the uh, late 50s, early 60s from Impy. So. Uh, Joe's a great guy, a wonderful story, and you guys are going to learn a lot this episode. So uh, without any further ado, let's get into this episode. And at the end, we'll have a few minutes to talk about the upcoming show here in Vegas, as well as we'll also be giving some shout outs for some of those people that picked up some merch or gave us some reviews on either Apple iTunes or Facebook or however they're going to give us some reviews. So Right now, it's time to sit and get some authentic, real, lived it, been there, done that history, which only you can get from Let's Talk Dubs podcast. So sit down, grab yourself something comfortable to drink, get a good wrench that fits in your hand and get to work under your car and enjoy this week's podcast with Joe Horvath from Revmaster. everybody on today's podcast i have a special guest today uh my buddy joe my buddy joe i met back in 2014 when i went to europe uh, a buddy of mine convinced me to come out to belgium for the weekend and he was out there kicking around with my buddy joe and joe horvath is my buddy uh he's been in the vw scene for over over 50 years at least yeah at least 50 years and uh, he was there in the beginning when everything was happening and we're going to catch you guys up to speed so on today's podcast is joe horvath with rev master at hesperia california joe welcome to the show thank you for helping me yeah so i i'm i'm excited to have you on here because one of my favorite things about doing the podcast is really getting the history of how things came down in the beginning and how all these things started because you've got history goes back with with Econo Motors and all this stuff and we're going to get into all that but first the first question I always ask my guests on the on the podcast is how did you get into VWs to begin with well after mustering out of the Marine Corps which I put about six years in during the Korean conflict I was in the aviation section and so 
uh, when I got out, I had a friend named Plaxco that was the uh, parts manager at Econa Motors, a fledgling VW dealership that just started. And that was in 1956. And so I went to work there uh, and uh, as the shop foreman. And the shop foreman's duties were taking care of the heavy the uh, drive lines and managing the uh, the service department and so on and so forth. And during that time, uh, also we were working on special engine parts for Empy, mm -hmm. making the 36-horse engine bigger and better and selling some stuff to uh, other companies like uh, clutches and for <clears throat> increasing the capabilities of the engine and, and driveline. And you, you, you're fresh out of the military, and you've got a background in aviation mechanics? Basically, yeah, more than a little more than that. I was mm -hmm. the engineering officer. Oh, okay. And so... So more of the design, the engineering, and then making sure stuff goes from yeah. design engineering to yeah. production type stuff. Yeah, we started out with uh, propeller-driven aircraft and then digressed into uh, the first jets that the Marine Corps was taking into combat. Mm -hmm. and, so, uh, and so now you're over at Econo Motors. You, you, now, Plaxco, you knew him from the military? From the high school. Oh, for, you went to high school? With high him. school. And we were hot rodders in Riverside. And after uh, a while, we started, we, I hired Dean Lowry mm -hmm. to run the, uh, the uh, engine overhaul and maintenance. And uh, then I hired Lee Layton. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all worked together at Econa Motors. Now, when you hired these guys, they came in, they had experience hot rod and VWs and they stuff? Were, they were all the hot rod crowd in Riverside. So you thought, like, these guys, they already have an interest in hot rodding Volkswagens. Why not bring them into the dealership? Well, they needed the job. <laughs> Got it. Racing wasn't part of the deal. Sure, sure. But uh, also, uh, Dan Gurney was doing promotional work right. for Econa Motors and— uh, Testing VWs on the Riverside Raceway uh, with certain things that Joe Batone wanted to do. To do and uh, and so, how long are you guys at Econo Motors? So you, you're running. You're the shop foreman. You hire Lee Layton, Dean Lowry, Dean Lowry, yeah. Dean Lowry. Now, Dean Lowry, Lee Layton, and you guys are are kind of in the in the service department working on. Yeah, it was the engines, rebuilds, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. And uh, and being hot rodders, or you guys, you guys are naturally looking for like, hey, let's let's see if we can get a better clutch. Let's see if we can get bigger valves. Let's well, see if we can do this and that. that that's how the birth <clears throat> birth uh, of Empy started, yeah. because uh, all Empy's product line was always higher performance. Right, and there was this issue. One of the issues was the valve guide. And being in the shop, the early VW 36-horse cylinder heads had a, 
atrocious valve guide materials, and the valve guides were wearing out. The valve seats were going bad. Valve heads were falling off the stems. Oh, wow. And so on. And the factory would not allow the dealers to try to overhaul a cylinder head. Mm -hmm. And it was mandatory that they just be replaced. And so after a while, the old used cylinder head inventory was, because we never threw them away, it started to build up. And we got this idea, let's figure out a way to change the valve guides. Mainly, that was the the beginning. And there was an ex-engineer uh, from Packard Motor Car Company. His name was Joe Hoy. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, worked on the Merlin engines for the P-51s there. And so one day we were talking about taking and doing something about these cylinder heads. Right. Why throw them all in the garbage? These right. things are, they're worth doing something with, right? So we came up with the idea to change the valve guides, but we needed to make tooling to pull the guide out and put the t- guide back in and also get the proper guide material and have guides made. So... After a while, we had this kit with the guides, and we started selling them around the world to the same problem that we had, you know, all these cylinder heads sitting around. Yeah, and, you got, and you've got a dealership, and you're looking at the stack of cylinder heads yeah. that, for other than the valve guides being blown out, yeah. they're reusable. And, and, so, and, and so pretty soon there were thousands and thousands of valve guides being sold. And they were uh, a very good profit in it. Mm-hmm. And so that really started to kick off the AMPI program. Sure. And so we... Uh, and so before this, there was there was no real MP. It was Econo Motors. And then how did the whole name Impy and all that come about? Who was in charge of all that? Well, Joe Vitone and his partner, uh, Holton M. Hoy, at Econo Motors... Uh, mainly Joe wanted to bring in the Acrosa kit from Germany, mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of another part besides the valve guides and then other pieces and parts, high-performance parts. And Empey did not have a building or office or anything, so all of that was run out of the body shop of Empey. Of Econo Motors? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Econo Motors. Yeah. And that was on Roberta Street and where the body shop was. And it. Uh, and then Dean Laurie went to work for the uh, MP program at the body shop. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, in charge of trying to put together a drag car. And that's another story. But uh, uh-huh. uh, after that, uh, during all this, from 56 to through 58, going into 59, 
everything was rosy with the management mm-hmm. of Joe and Vatone, and then pretty soon we were concerned that he wasn't living up to our uh, your agreement agreements regarding commissions and so on. So you guys came to this 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 shop that wasn't doing so great. You guys th- said we'll bring some talent in here and we'll build it up, and then for that we'll get compensated as the business increases. Pretty much, and the service department went from zero to number one in the area. Really, matter West Coast. Really, number one service department in the yeah, West Coast. So yeah. that means the fewest callbacks, the most jobs turned around, like production, yeah. performance, revenue, that, all that. That's correct. And then you guys were like, all right, now's our time to get paid. Yeah. And <laughs> so typical argument. Yeah. And so we decided we quit. And Joe got all excited and says, well, you can't do that. Yeah, we can. We're leaving. We're going into real estate. Yeah. And... Uh, well, then we changed our mind. Well, we'll just go build an engine shop. Yeah. And he says, well, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he he says, I want in. So Joe wants in on the engine shop. Yeah. And then, so we all sat down and, and uh, constructed a, a deal and put together Revmaster Inc. Okay. And that was in 1959? 59. And that was... Uh, the uh, the model was reman uh, VW engines and sell them exchange. Right. So somebody bring in a core. You'd like what Gex is doing or whoever was was doing that stuff for a long time. Uh, and uh, you guys went into production, just rebuilt reman stock motors. Yes, but in order to start, we needed the cores. Right. So uh, we all got together and kind of financed the core purchase program, which was a suitcase and about $50,000 cash in it. And then we got a Beetle and took off on the West Coast, going to every wrecking yard you could find and Buying up the cores. So every core motor, you guys would scour every wrecking yard all over the West Coast. Yeah, pay cash, and then they would just deliver to the to our new facility in Sunny Mead. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, one of my stops was uh, up there in Farmersville, mm-hmm. and that's where I met the old man, uh, and he. Uh, had a wrecking yard there, so I bought two or three cores yeah. from him, and uh, then uh, went to Frisco and up to Washington and so on. We ended up with a couple of hundred cores. Yeah, so to start off the business, obviously you need the cores, so you guys load up on a bunch of cores. Now, when you say the old man in, in farming— Thomason. Yeah, Tomlinson, so— so you go meet, and and is that Bob or is it Claude? Claude. So you meet Claude, and Claude's over there. Now, this is the crazy part, because Claude is the C from CB Performance, right? That's Claude's right. Claude's buggies. Right. That's where that comes from. And interestingly enough, what even today, Farmersville is pretty desolate. I mean, you'd think Hesperia's kind of desolate, not a lot of big city and booming, but I guess a lot of people had Volkswagens over there. Yeah, there was quite a few, and Claude had to 
a wrecking yard with a bunch of burnout VWs, uh, mainly caused by fuel line failures. Right, dry, crusty fuel lines, right. and, and just pop right, pointed right toward the distributor, and yeah. boom, there you go. Yeah. So after, so once we got the cores, then they were disassembled, cleaned, and inspected, and then. New bearings, new cranks, whatever was necessary, and then we started to market it. And so you guys would line board the cases, all that stuff, or you guys would use new cases? No, we. The early ones were basically taken apart and using the good stuff to make one. So if you had a good case that wasn't blown out, didn't need line boring, you just reuse the case. Yeah, go go back through it, and and then you were piling up with rebuildables right cases that were out around in the center yeah. and needed some work and so by 1960 mm-hmm. we uh were uh having a pretty sophisticated remanufacturing program for the cases and cranks and so on now now quick question vw originally said the the engine the crankcase was not rebuildable that you needed that that in the, in the dealership you'd buy a new crankcase was that w- did they line bore at the time or they well, did well uh, Volkswagen Wolfsburg had a reman program for their own cases oh really yeah for their whole engine so you could so Volkswagen sold a line bar tool and all that stuff to to recenter it well it wasn't Volkswagen selling it it was the independent German companies that would sell the line boring equipment which was mainly hand-operated, mm-hmm. but we developed and built our own automatic line-boring equipment. So the the line the traditional line-bore that people see today, where you turn the drill and it just kind of goes through and does its thing, who, where, where did that come out? That came out of the States or came out of Germany? That came out of the States. That's a, Originally, that was a ca- Caterpillar invention. Oh, really? A Caterpillar, heavy equipment Caterpillar? Yeah. <clears throat> the drive line... The drive mechanism for the bar. Yeah, that's that's borrowed from Caterpillar's yeah. uh, engineering department. I guess. And then they just put a cutter on there and just run yeah. it right through and true yeah. the case up. Because you could, that particular invention was scalable. Mm-hmm. You could start off with small, big, and sure. big. Sure. So now you guys are remanding motors. And at this time, give me give me an idea of like. But right in the middle of that. Uh-huh. We also started the across a Denzel engine program. Now, what's the what was the story on that? How, that's all stuff from overseas, right? Right. And then, how did you guys were you guys seeing this? In the magazines advertised Denzel and Okrasa, and you guys thought, well, shoot, let's get some of that performance stuff in here and beef some of these motors up. Yeah, well, that's uh, started the high performance line, mm-hmm. and uh, that got to be fairly uh, a decent profit in that and then in the middle of all this the tone wants to go right and we're going left and uh, we got in an argument over how to run the business Uh and he says well if you don't like it buy me out and so I said well let me think about it so and there's four partners in this company at this time? Yeah. So it's it's Joe Vitone, Dean Lowry. No, Dean, it was 
no, Joe Batone, Holton M. Hoy. Holton M. Hoy. And then Plaxco. Plaxco. And myself. And you. And so. Now, so you're telling me three of the partners in Revmaster are still are still part of Econo Motors. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So anyway, uh, the half that would be bought out was Holton M. Hoy and Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, he threw a number out there. And thinking that we couldn't scrounge the money up to do it. So if we can't buy him out, you got to go along with what he wants. Right. Well, that was 10 in the morning. Uh, I just figured out, came back at noon and gave him a check. Really? And it was for uh, $35,000. grand. you bought 50% back of yeah. Revmaster. That was 1959 and 60. That's quite a bit of scratch. That's enough to buy three houses, I think, Th- maybe two or three houses back then. Yeah. I mean, a new house back then in 1959, you're going to be running eleven, twelve thousand $12,000? Yeah, up to sixteen max. Sixteen if you're yeah. living in a mansion. Yeah. We're just talking regular city folk. Yeah. So, so anyway, then right after that, we decided the building wasn't big enough. And so my younger brother, Don, mm-hmm. came back out of the Army. So we started a, a new facility in Riverside. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that what year is that? It would have been uh, about 61. 1961. Yeah. Now, coming up here soon is going to be the 40-horse motor. That's correct. And how does that? How does the forty horse coming out change everything? Does it just make it better, or now you've got parts that are not usable cross platform, which is causing? Well, that was that was an interesting entry of the forty horse, and it was in the mainly in the Type Two. Right. And uh, well, they had that nineteen sixty Type Two, which was they called a bastard forty horse, which it's a forty horse with thirty six horse pieces inside that's, it. That's pretty much it. And yeah. They had a lot of problems with that, so I don't think they ran could run more than ten thousand miles without the engines having to come apart and warranties all over the place. And so uh, the distributor in Los Angeles was stockpiling all the the warranty cases and warranty parts and so on and. So through the back door, we were getting all those yeah. and remanning the the 40 horse a, a way ahead of anybody else. Really? So well before the 40 horse was being in production, you were getting all those those 1960 cases that's that were right. a disaster and dialing them in and getting them set up for reman. That's when we built, designed and built the automatic line boring equipment. And so they, that was designed and built at? At Revmaster? At the new facility. At the new facility. But you guys that are working there designed the new line boring tool. That's right. Really? And had it manufactured for you guys? Uh, it, it was, uh, say again now. You had it, You guys had developed the design specifically for the VW application. That's right. And made it made it in-house with your machine shop? Or you guys? No, contracted it out. Contracted it out. Yeah. It was, and then did you start selling the line bores to people all across the country? No, or you just kept no. them for your own, yeah. your own business. They uh, 
also uh, big disc grinders to grind the case halves. Oh, really? Put them together, uh-huh. line bore, and so on. So we then, in the middle of all this, we started contracting with like Sears and Robot for reman motors. Reman motors. Wow. Uh, we were selling to Montgomery's Ward's uh, automotive shops. Sure. Uh, J.C. Penney at that one time. Everybody was doing it. Doing it. Yeah. And so our production went from, you know, 50 a month to 100 a month, 200 a month, 300. Now, we also, you, you mentioned to me in passing, there was a connection with the myers Manks as well. Exactly. Uh, when uh, Bruce got on board with a the dune buggy program Mm -hmm. he naturally needed uh, engines and so uh, transmissions Uh, so we started we put together a contract with him and started delivering these higher performance uh, engines not just standard Mm -hmm. bigger bore different cams carburation and so on so that uh, so then now at this point you're selling remanufactured motors out of the catalog to Sears, Montgomery Ward, uh, J.C. Penny, probably J.C. Whitney, probably. I mean, no, Whitney didn't come along. We kind of stayed clear of them. Yeah, they were always known as like the, the like the low end yeah. type of guy. So you're selling the Revmaster. So how many motors do you think during the time or the early days of Revmaster do you think you're remanufacturing and selling? You go. You said you went from doing what? How many a week to how many? Well, we we started out, you know, like fifty a month, and then pretty soon it was the the short block. Mm-hmm. It was valve cover to valve cover, pulley to flywheel, Flywheel. and <clears throat> we were doing close to five hundred a month. Wow! And we were running up. We had about eighty employees. That's insane. And the building. Square footage went from 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 square feet. That's out of control. Yeah. And then how long, How so now this is now the heyday. How long does this run for? We ran that program about 10 years. So 19, so this is 1961, 62. Yeah. You're going to 1972, you're running strong. That's correct. And what happens? Well, about that time, competition started to come in. Now everybody's coming after you. Like yeah. they see it's a huge market. To to back up a little bit, sure. the core situation was always, you know, having a problem. And there was a young gentleman named Tom Lieb mm-hmm. that was going to college at the time, and he was earning money selling his cores. Now Tom Lieb, for those those that aren't familiar, Tom Lieb is the guy who started Scat. That's right. Okay, so Tom Lieb is selling you cores or is buying your cores? He was selling cores. He was going around collecting cores mm-hmm. in his spare time, and he would come out to Riverside and unload his truck and onto the docks. And the first time around, he'd spend maybe 10 minutes there, got his check, and took off. About a 
fifth trip, he spent a half an hour, and then pretty soon a couple of hours. Yeah, <laughs> learning the trade. <laughs> so he was just a core collector, like he was a recycler guy. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, he, was, he he knew that if he could get if he could get something for five bucks and sell it to you guys for ten, that's it, what he did to make yeah, extra money. It worked. And so he saw potential that there was more. Was he a VW enthusiast at the time? Did he also I would imagine one? so. I don't know the details. Well, mm -hmm. he was going to school, but uh, and he saw this. He saw your your operation going on. He thought, like, man, what if what if I could get into this? Maybe we're, we're spurred his idea. Pretty much. Uh -huh. And then, so did you develop a relationship with him? And then, uh, yeah, we we got along pretty good. Yeah. And then the other guy that came by. Spending some time there was Claude. Oh, really? And his son. Yeah. Bob. Claude and then his son, Bob Tomlinson. Yeah, they come the down there Weber's. wanting to see this operation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of put the bug in their ear. Right. Everybody saw like, man, this guy's got it really broken down to a process <laughs> where he's got this little factory down here and we need to get one of our own. Yeah. And so you're, you're igniting the fire for a lot of these guys that want to see how it's done. Yeah. And so these guys, now all of a sudden, you start seeing a lot of competition come on the market, or what happens? Yeah, well, that that competition got to be national. Mm -hmm. And uh, making it more difficult. But that wasn't the main reason. We had some issues regarding the company. Uh, at the same time, uh, when we were doing all this, you know, we were working with the MP program. And mm -hmm. uh, then, since we had uh, a decent amount of employees there, the uh, unions got involved. Really? And the unions and the employees eventually ended up being unionized. Mm -hmm. and Which then, as we know from a business standpoint, it pushes your cost of doing business really high and you've got to turn around and give that to the customer making you uncompetitive that was dramatic as far as the costs going up mainly because of a uh, work regulations mm -hmm. one guy couldn't do this had his job was this but he couldn't do that right he's a crank setter he's yeah, not a piston he's he, not a piston installer got to be horrendous management problem so you guys went from 80 employees to what? Well, it was it it maintained that. Um, at the meantime, Joe Vitone mm -hmm. was having problems with Empy. So I don't know exactly what that was, but he ended up wanting to sell it. And that's when he sold it to Filter Dynamics. This yeah, who he sells. Filter Dynamics actually was in our place originally because we were looking for a, a way out. So you thought maybe you could get bought out by Filter Dynamics. Yeah. So they were the 800-pound gorilla buying up companies. So that's what happened. Filter Dynamics bought both of us. Oh, bought RevMaster. Well, the, the facilities, because we were shutting down the RevMaster facility, and so... Filter Dynamics came in and you sold them the, the, the physical equipment, the building, yeah, the property, the We didn't sell the name. Right. You kept so, Revmaster. Uh, Ampy was sold and so was the property. 
and tooling and all of the stuff at Revmaster. And so Filter Dynamics was running that. So they hired our Plaxco, mm -hmm. who was general manager at Revmaster, went on to be general manager at at the Filter Dynamics Empy. And so one day he comes to me and says, I don't know what they're going to do, but they offered to give me the company. <laughs> they offered to give him Impy? Yeah. And I says, well, are they going to put any cash with it? Because <laughs> it's now now it's like it's so competitive. Impy's no longer the top dog. Everything's kind of watered down. The, the new Super Beetle's coming out. All these things are changing. And so all these parts and equipment that they have is like for the old models. Yeah. And the money that it takes to retool, make new stuff, and keep up with the evolution of the VW. Now Filter Dynamics probably came in, jumped on this thing. VW goes through a whole remanufacturing of the Super Beetle, changes everything. And now they're like, well, that didn't work so great. Now we've got to, you know, VW used to pride itself in their ads on how their cars were the same from 1951 to 1964. Yeah. And then they do this revamp because sales started to slump in 72. And so they come up with the Super Beetle. And that may be, and I don't know, maybe just with two guys talking, that could have been one of the reasons why Filter Dynamics maybe came too late to the game, bought Impy on the downslide, and then realized they didn't want it. So now Plaxco gets the offer. And what do you tell him to do? You said they better give you a bucket load of money with it too because <laughs> yeah. it's not worth anything? It's pretty much it. And I said, well, you could probably take the name and if we could get it financed and so on. And, and we talked about it and decided, well, better not. Too much liability, yeah. maybe too many things connected. Who knows? And so the empty um, name became dormant because they just uh, they just didn't reenact re the name didn't reincorporate it and so uh, Weldon senior uh, now Weldon senior at the time is prior to this is if I'm not mistaken he worked for Impy as a salesman is that right that's right and then he left Impy well he worked for Econo Motors as a salesman Really? Uh, to begin with, uh -huh. and then, then ended up taking on the empty thing. Because, because, where does Mr. Bug come in at this time? Did he? Because I thought he started a company called Mr. Bug. Was that Weldon? Yeah, or no? that was Weldon uh, Senior. He so had, Weldon Senior starts yeah, Mr. Bug when yeah. when he leaves after the Filter Dynamics buyout. He starts Mr. Bug at that time. Yeah, and then now Impy gets shut down, name goes dormant, Weldon sees an opportunity and says, well, it's it's no different than the carpet place closes down and they got a really catchy phone number. They've been in business for 20 years, and then you go buy their phone number. Yeah, so. so something like that. So he took it over, the name. Then, so he takes the name over to revamp and the name. And then starts slightly building it up mm -hmm. with trinkets and things. And, and then his son... Uh, Eventually took it on. Yeah, and then built it into what it yeah. it's, it was up until it just was recently sold. Yeah, and so now what happens with Revmaster? So you 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 sell the facility to Filter Dynamics. So you're part of that whole deal. Another another time in space in history where the Impy gets sold, but along with Impy, jo, uh, you know, Joe Horvath is connected with that too. 
Right. Because you're still one of the guys in the in the beginning with all this stuff. Yeah, well, when Plaxico took over the management, he uh, left the Roberta Street, which mm-hmm. uh, was uh, where Empey was, and moved everything into the Revmaster plant. And then ran that, and that, that's when they finally got Plaxico and Builder Dynamics went out of business and yeah. so on. Then, uh, So what do you do with RevMaster now? The, we kept the name, mm-hmm. but before we already developed the RevMaster aircraft engine. So during this time when, when the heyday's going great, you being having a background in aviation, you're like, hey, why don't we make a, an airplane engine with the VW motor? That's correct. So were you the first one to bring that to market, or were there other people doing it? Well, there was nobody that was really doing it to any sophistication. Doing it correctly. Like, yeah. There were a lot of chicken farmers making a biplane and crashing probably into a bale Yeah, of it was mainly all 1600 stuff. So 1600s, and you're looking at that thinking like... You're not going to get a plane up in the air with a 1600 cc. So that's when we built the 2.1 liter engine. And what year is this? 1968. So 1968, you built a 2.1 liter, which is bigger than anything VW has on the market. Yeah. Because VW doesn't come out with a 2 liter up until 1970. Maybe, well, the Type 4, the the Type 4 doesn't even come out until 1970, right? In the Porsche, on the Porsche end. And that's a one seven, I think one seven one eight, and then yeah. there there were some two liters, but that was like the big hop up. So you so you, when you're building a two point you come to market. Revmaster says, you say I'd like to go after the aviation market. I see a market there. That's about right. And then you're kind of done with the hustle and bustle. You yeah. put a few bucks in your pocket or saved some skin, and decided to down down tune a little bit and get into doing aviation motors. Yeah, they. One thing that set it off is that Dean Laurie, myself, came up with a 92-millimeter barrel. Oh, that's your guy's mm-hmm. idea? Yeah. And how'd you come up with the 92-millimeter barrel? Well, it all started way back at Econo Motors when uh-huh. Dean and I worked on big bore cylinders for the 36. And then when the 40 came out, we were able to make the 92 fit the 40-horsepower case. And the 92-millimeter piston, were you guys, did, did you guys ever look into the, the General Motors air-cooled stuff, the Corvair parts or any of that kind of stuff? Did any of that ever cross over? Did you guys ever test any of that stuff with it too? Well, at one time when we were still in Sunnymead, we built Corvair cylinders. Oh, you did? For a, a race team. And uh, and the the ninety two millimeter cylinder that you built that fit the forty horse motor, that was a complete design you guys came up with on your own. Had it cast, had it. Had well, it what we did once we uh, haggled it all together, we contracted with a Japanese company mm-hmm. and have then made up about a thousand sets. And what was the name of that company? Uh, got uh, slips my memory okay but it's it's not a it's not a well-known company this is no. a private company behind the scenes nobody knows 
that they make cylinders. You guys reach out to them. And, and Japan at the time was making pretty decent quality stuff, yeah? That's right. And they were affordable. Yes, they were. So then what happened is everybody jumped on it. So as soon as they find out Joe, Joe and Dean are doing this thing with these 92-millimeter pistons, everybody jumps into it. Yeah, pretty much. The Brazilians and the Japanese and... And everybody says, oh, these guys are making it for Volkswagens. Well, let's just sell it direct. Let's <laughs> anyway, that's what helped get the 2.1 liter engine. Sure. Because at that time, we had crank uh, facilities to make stroke cranks. And you guys did welded cranks? Welded cranks. We had the first uh, crank welding machine ever on the West Coast. Oh, really? It was a... a it was a uh, powder-coated type mm -hmm. welding operation where you could con uh, <clears throat> control the hardness of the fillet and the surface, the bearing surface. And we were making a lot of stroker cranks then. So you guys were just taking stock cranks, which were the displacement back at that time. was yeah. These were 40-horse cranks? Yeah, 69-stroke cranks. And went up to 70, 78, and mm -hmm. some 82s. And at this time, because you got, there's Formula V racing taking place. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So the, the need for performance parts is starting to go up quite a bit. We built probably a couple hundred Formula V engines. Really? So a couple hundred Formula V engines. Now, this is in this time now that you're moving on to making the 2.1 liter aviation motor. You're still doing some automotive motors? That's that's pretty much, oh, yeah. We have uh, all our Okrasa and MP line we're still making. Also, the higher performance uh, complete engines, that's not just the short blocks. Oh, so you'd build turnkey high-performance motors. That's right. And then the uh, that's when we built the Scorpion Dragster. So you built the Scorpion Dragster? Yeah, in 68. Wow. For those that aren't familiar with the Scorpion Dragster, tell them about the Scorpion Dragster, for those that are out there not familiar with the Scorpion Dragster. Well, that was a, a, a Dragster that was the first uh, four-cylinder VW-operated machine that could that broke into the nines. So you break you guys are the first ones to break in the nines. Who's driving? Lee Layton. We Lee built Layton. the car to fit Lee Layton. And it's this is basically just tubing around a body, is all. Pretty it is. much the the frame didn't weigh much more than forty pounds. The frame was forty pounds. Yeah, with that's without all the attachments and, and so on. If I'm not mistaken, nine second quarter mile, you're running about a hundred and fifteen miles an hour. No, one thirty. One, one thirty, jeez Louise, one thirty with a forty-pound cage around you, and bicycle tires on the front. Yeah. What were you got? Were they actual bicycle tires that you yeah, guys would that, use back then? That's that's right. So the bicycle tires weren't obviously they weren't speed rated. You didn't have a lot of contact patch. No, yeah, that's the learning curve. Right. So, so the Scorpion Dragster. What was the displacement on that motor that ran nine seconds? Uh, about nineteen hundred cc. And what? And what were you running for carburetors on it? 
Uh, eventually, it, it started out with carbs. Then we put a small supercharger on it. Now, what kind of supercharger was it? Uh, the name of it escapes my... Is this the my, twin supercharged motor that I've seen on the internet? Uh, or just it a had single a single supercharger, and it was uh, basically... What it started out to be was a a uh, vacuum pump for uh, uh, aviation program down in San Diego where they pump down big tanks. Yeah. Hold on a second. The supercharger was used as a vacuum pump prior to you guys commandeering and saying, this will be a supercharger. <laughs> if you run it the other way. Really? Wow. And so you guys are running a supercharger on that thing, and then you're running nine seconds. What does everybody do in the hobby then when you guys – what's the closest time to nine seconds? About there, 11. So you guys blow everybody out of the water yeah. by two seconds mm -hmm. and set an NHRA record? Well, it wasn't the NHRA. It was just a record at a first race at Orange County Raceway. Oh, really? At Orange County? One of the bug-ins? Bug-in. Wow. And how and what's the response once that happens when you guys in 1968 when you guys blow that record out of the water? Well, it, it got us a lot of ink. But yeah, that was about it. Didn't get you a bunch of orders. <laughs> Not a lot of people here order 1900s, huh? Yeah. Wow. I I think that record held 10 years. Wow, 10 years. That's amazing. I mean, and, that, and to be two seconds to leapfrog everybody by two seconds has to leave everybody scratching their head. Yeah. Then. Oh, uh, let's say our new dragster. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see how many years later. And uh, we barely beat it by one second. <laughs> on the the new dragster with a three liter. Yeah, 650 horsepower. <laughs> barely beats it by a second from nine to eight seconds. Yeah. That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. So now you get into building aviation motors, and it's kind of a real niche market. And, and, and some of the challenges... I think a lot of us VW guys think to ourselves, like, the last thing I'm doing is getting in an airplane with a VW motor. Because, because I think VW motors have always been the premise, once you think you're a VW guy, is that they're so simple anybody can work on them. But that means a lot of people monkey with the motors to make them unreliable. So the whole craft and building an aviation motor, that's been maybe a challenge that nobody realizes is that an aviation motor has to build a lot of horsepower at really low RPM. That's that's the formula. Yeah. And so that's kind of your new race is to try to see how much power you can put in a motor that doesn't turn over, what, 3,200 RPMs? Is that what you were talking yes, about earlier? 32. 32 is maximum, maximum well, RPM. You can go 34, but race planes sometimes go a little higher than that with small diameter propellers and so the challenge with building because i notice here that you have your own you have your own engine case here that's for the three liter and that that engine case that you have here for a three liter that takes a special crankshaft because the nose has been designed for a a propeller yeah the flange on the end of the crank that holds the propeller has to be well designed in order to in order to take all the forces. Right, because all of that pressure, there's really no transmission, right? It's just the propeller is what's pulling that thing through the air, so that's putting all the strain on the nose of the Yeah, crankshaft. well, the thrust is one thing, 
but the gyroscopic forces are another. As the propeller is a giant char, uh, gyro. Sure. And if you want to perturb that, just visualize a crank and a gyro, then twisting and turning. Yeah. As the airframe moves through the air, such as yaw and pitch, that eventually they'll fatigue that area and break off. So when you started building this, because we talked earlier, and you and and you came up with flanging crankshafts. Yeah, they. The part that held the flywheel mm-hmm. for the automotive is a dowel pin flywheel uh, arrangement. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't use that on the aviation engine. So we incorporated a flange. Like, uh, and it was a, started out as a four bolt flange mm-hmm. and now it's a six bolt flange. So you had the crankshafts cast with a larger end on them, a big flange on the end. That's that, right. That that's you, forged. That, that that's forged. That you had drilled and tapped that would hold a larger, a different, a different connection to the flywheel. Because the purpose for the flanging is what? Is that to keep the back of the crankshaft stable because of all the force on the front? Well, it. We needed to put an accessory housing on the back of the engine. Okay. That drives the magnetos and the alternator and the, the starter setup. And oh, that's so, right, because none of that runs off the front of the motor. Because yeah. the only thing you got on the front yeah. of the motor is a propeller. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you started flanging crankshafts, and then sooner than later, they started doing it in drag race, and they saw, hey, this is this flange crankshaft works pretty well to keep the crankshaft. And I think in drag racing, they use it for more of a like a – center stabilization of keeping the back from wobbling out i guess because that back end of that crankshaft wants to get going right well uh dial pins can be sheared off on due to the clutch actions Mm -hmm. and so on and eventually there's a time and place that'll fail the flange bolted on generally is bulletproof yeah that thing's not coming off without a, a big fight Wow. And so you've been doing now uh, aviation engines for 40, 45 years? That's about right. So focusing primarily on aviation, you're out here in Hesperia at the airport, building these motors, more, and you really have gone into manufacturing parts, right? I mean, some of the stuff you started, and we talked earlier, and I was out in your warehouse, and I saw some brand new heads, and... While everybody's remanufacturing heads, you decide you want brand new heads cast. You you were doing this back in the early '60s. You went to or in late '60s, you go to Japan, and you get them to make some pistons. And you're like, why can't I just get people to make me some heads? If the heads that are on the market are no good, let me make my own. Well, we started making our new heads with incorporating everything we needed in order to build a high performance head. And uh, we started out and worked quite well, and uh, we well, we shipped several thousand of them actually from 2010 to about 2005. Really? So, like so 2015, so, rather. So 2015 for five years, you guys were just shipping heads to everybody. Or yeah, anybody that wanted to buy them around the world. And what and 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 the advantage of the heads that you designed. Now this is in 2010 before we've got a bunch of people that have got all these new CNC heads. 
you know, thicker, thicker port chambers, relocated spark plugs, more meat between the valves and that stuff. You came up with that head design. You started having that made in 2010 or prior to that? Well, the design started in 2009, 2008. Mm-hmm. And then finally the tooling, the tooling was uh, in production in 2010. And uh, So you start making this head, and then like all good things that have happened in the past, somebody sees this <laughs> crank you flanged or these pistons you made and this this head you came up with, and they said, hey, why don't I just find the place where Joe's making his heads and have them make me some heads, right? That's what happened. And so now you go with all this time, energy, and development at developing some heads that you can really put some work into for the aviation market, and now people start knocking off your heads. So your head sales go from you're doing a good business just selling cylinder heads, and then it just starts to die when you get people – start invading your supplier that's yeah, pretty much right that's brutal brutal man you, you should get you should get an award for that the most innovative guy that's put so much stuff out there that everybody just decides to to take advantage of but uh you know i guess uh the the greatest form of flattery is imitation right kind of <laughs> it would be nice it's getting down to the point where I'm going to start doing it. Yeah, right? I mean, you figure if there's no no honor among thieves, why? Who cares, right? Let's just go for it. So during the process of, of developing aviation stuff, I know when I was out in your warehouse, I saw some, I saw a really, really cool turbo manifold, which which the podcast listeners will see on the uh, the pictures that I put up on the follow the, the companion blog that's at letstalkdubs.com you guys will see the companion blog that'll have several pictures of me joe joe's operation over here and you might even catch a picture of my buddy scott hanging out in the background my assistant today and uh this this turbo setup that i saw on there i like this in this intake plenum he has and you guys will see it on the internet and it would work perfect for a type three and uh it's a really ingenious design because of everything working off the back side of the motor uh Joe's got a setup here, which has a uh, a carburetor injector, right? In, injector carburetor. Injector carburetor. Um, now, this is specifically for aviation, but it would work on the street, limited to certain RPM, right? I mean, well, no, not limited to RPM. It just you would have to. Uh, uh, Build a proper manifolding for it, mm-hmm. linkage, and so on, and fuel control. Yeah, and it's pretty wild. I'll show you guys. A, you guys will see a picture of it. But uh, seeing this motor um, and this this turbo setup, so you're doing turbo motors in aircraft. So, and the the key with any aircraft development and design is it has to be reliable. That's part of the game. Yeah, like, <laughs> so you've got a fairly good success record if you're building aircraft engines, right? Because people wouldn't be buying them from you if people are dropping out of the sky. Yeah, you. And a Revmaster. Fatalities are, you know, uh, really non-existent for us. Hopefully, right. You know, so right. So, so you've developed a new case. Um, the case that you developed for the three liter is that was it usable on a street engine or no? Oh sure. So yeah, the, the the front where the nose has been cut open, it's not been taken too big to where you could use a re- a standard VW drag racing crankshaft in it. Oh, you can put uh, 
generally up to 90 millimeter stroke crankshaft in there with 60 millimeter mains. And you're stocking these cases? Uh, we have the castings, but we have There's none on the shelf. Okay. And so these are made on a per order basis? Uh, yeah, if it gets to be interesting enough. Yeah. So you got, so mostly this has been an experimental deal to see if you could get it up to a three, a three liter and make a few production engines or test engines. Yeah. The, the test engines, there's several aviation versions and then they, they, uh, dragster engines that were, that we were running, those were all turbocharged 600 700 horsepower engines. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's a, that, that's incredible. So if- there there is a street legal 3 liter engine mm-hmm. that uh the Red Baron crew uh uh yeah. at one time ran one in in uh, ran the car at uh Las Vegas at 151 mile an hour. Yeah. That's a street legal. Yeah, I think that was like maybe a, was that a, that would be a seven second pass? No, it wouldn't or be eight, that quick. Eight seconds. Yeah. Yeah, I had, uh, <clears throat> there's actually a, a race coming up in Las Vegas this October, and uh, we'll see if we can't uh, provide accommodations for you to come into town for the weekend and, and come out and see some races, and maybe some people get to see. Yeah, that'd be fun. Joe, Joe Horvath in the flesh. Um, but absolutely, I, if there's a, so if there's a demand for the three liter case and people are wanting a three liter case, you'll have no problem producing that case. Well, well, we're seriously thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And what, what would the price point be on this case? You think? Uh, about the same as a type one case out of Brazil. About 800 bucks. Is that what they're going for? Six uh, to eight? Or you, have they dropped a little bit? You can buy a new one for around 600. Okay. Then the machining operations add two, three hundred to it. And so your your engine case, if they buy your engine case, it's ready to go, all machined, stroked, clearance, everything right. ready for to go. Right, up to three liter. Now, what did you do different about your engine case when when it went back to the drawing board for you, having all these years of experience building engines and doing all this stuff? What did you change in the design on your three liter crankcase? The main thing about it is is the through bolts. They instead of pressed in bolts inside the case halves. The, the troubles with like type one cases, the stud, the main studs that hold the engine together, are anchored on one side. Right. And then they protrude through the other half of the case, and then when you tighten the stud, torque it up. The part that's anchored in the other half of the case starts to pull out. Is a yeah, it's, it's a high pull, and it stresses the case, and you have a limit for torque. Mm-hmm. Now, if that bolt goes clear through all six of them, and you want to torque it up, it is evenly clamped, and there's no there and the stresses are equal. And we can torque it up to 50, 60, 100 foot-pounds if we want. 100 foot-pounds versus a Type 1 motor's 20, 25. 25 pounds yeah. on a crankcase bolts? Yeah, so when you're running a 600 horsepower through the crankcase. You're using 25, <laughs> 25 pound-feet of torque to hold that crankshaft still, huh? 
Yeah, and you can't allow the crank to move in there. Sure. And now your case, is it solid aluminum or is it aluminum-magnesium mix? It's it's aluminum, a high-grade aluminum. And then it has a nose piece. So it's actually a three-piece case. Yeah, well, it's four-piece, really. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. You have the the front section, the top cover, the bottom. You can have a wet sump or a dry sump. It's a top cover similar to uh, the Corvair motor. Very true. Now, I had to get a Corvair in here somewhere because yeah, I just not? got a Corvair. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, other than they turn backwards, but we're not going to go into that. But uh, the top, so why does the top cover come off? Uh, generally, because it's easier to make the engine case and it's to machine it. So even so, so you're saying you thought about it from like a how can I produce it keeping the cost low and if I make the top piece come off it makes the casting not as difficult making it less expensive to manufacture. Also, the plate helps hold the engine case together. So it's it's another it's another clamping force that keeps. Yeah, well, it comes down, and then all the bolts come around, yeah. and that holds the top half of the case rigid. Yeah. Plus, you can put anything up there you want. And now, are you still selling cylinder heads? No, we stopped selling the O forty nine head, uh-huh. and uh, we plan on redesigning it. Mm-hmm. And basically, what we're going to do is cast in the into the chamber the proper. Uh, CCs, so you don't have to CC. So you'll pre-mold the head to have 58 CCs, whatever you whatever, want. Whatever, 60, 70. Uh, and chamber design makes a bit of a difference, too, especially yeah. if you're running a street motor versus an aircraft motor. Is it a big difference in chamber design, or it's pretty no, much the same? No, they're about the same. But now, they're, they're basically uh, a low-compression engine, like yeah. 8 to 1. The aircraft ones are. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about as we're walking around your shop and the podcast listeners can look on the companion and see what we're talking about. There were some really funky cylinder heads out back that had like these odd port angles coming out of the exhaust. What's the story in those cylinder heads? Well, that was a development between Dean Laurie and myself many years ago. How many years ago? Uh, It goes back into the like 72. And what was the name of those heads? Well, they were the angle port heads. Were they ever available for production? Yeah, through Bug Pack, they were sold, and also Dean, uh, Dean's brother, Kenny, was selling them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing the angle port, but we made it for a three liter. So you now took the same design and you've recast some of those heads for the three liter design. Yeah, well, they were completely big. To take the four-inch bore. Right, right. The, the the diameter wasn't there enough. So yeah, and and the strength of the early angle ports wasn't there. Yeah, and they were the early angle ports had eight stud pattern. Mm-hmm. Ours is ten stud pattern. So now your three-liter motor has a ten studs to hold the head on. That's right, because when you're running thirty pounds of boost, you can't allow any leakage. Right, and that's not allowed if and it's a rev four master. Four studs won't handle it. 
And when you get to a four-inch bore, the studs go way out, yeah. and there's a space between the studs where leakage starts, yeah. and you blow through. Well, that's the problem with the Type 4. The Type 4's leak head, the heads leak because there's not enough... The, the, the bolts are spaced too far apart, which is why they weld the fifth stud and do right. things like that there you go. on the heads. So, I mean, it's another thing that you've developed into your crankcase. I'm surprised that... Uh, well, the crankcase can run eight, and they can run... Uh, ten. Ten, because the crankcase also will accommodate the Type 1 head. So you can put a Type 1 or the angle port yeah, Type 1. Yeah, if four. you do a, the Type 1 head, you've got a 2,500cc engine. That's awesome, man. We could sit, we could sit here forever talking about this kind of stuff, but we, I gotta let you go home <laughs> sooner or later. So, wrapping up now, telling our listeners, what's Revmaster's focus in now the two thousand twenties? Can you believe that the two thousand twenties? What is Revmaster's focus right now, primarily? Uh, I really haven't given it much thought. Uh, I guess anything that comes along. Yeah. But uh, uh, any ideas? Well, but you're you're still doing the aircraft motors. You're, oh, certainly. You're, you're staying yeah. steadily busy doing that, and then also the three liter. You're the guy that's put the time, effort, and energy, and you've got the history, and you've put the you, you've already done the legwork on the three liter crankcase. Yeah, they for the twenties they probably put the three liter into production, and if. So this is going out to all those people listening to the podcast. If you guys are looking to step it up to get a three liter and and really start making some power, give Joe a call down here at Revmaster. I'm sure if a few of you guys get together and create enough demand, you know, and it doesn't have to be a lot of you. If it's ten of you guys and you're looking to build some three liters, I'm sure it wouldn't take much for him to throw a little production batch together and roll into production and maybe we get some fast three three liters on the road. Now, let me ask you one question. What What's your thoughts? Because I know you spend a lot of time with heads, uh, coming up with ideas for that. Have you ever given any thought to doing direct-injected VW heads? Well, to, now that you ask that, yes. Mm -hmm. And actually, we bought a whole system, BMW system, mm -hmm. and analyzed it. And it looked like uh, we could do it. It it can be done, but I don't know if the market's there for it. Now, the advantage with direct injection is you can control the fuel so precisely that you can really obviously make it as efficient as possible, which would also equate to making more power. If you can get more air, and now you're able to control the, the metered amount of fuel, your only limitation at that point is air. Yeah, uh, making more power might be questionable, but... It, efficiently making the power you got is definitely a big a big step forward have you ever so do you guys have a set of prototype direct injection vw heads no no we were we started the design on them and and we can because the aviation head is a dual plug head and if you want to run single plug you can put the Injector. direct injection in the where the second plug was why not yeah so that's basically where we could put it you know tomorrow i like the idea i'm ready to test the first set <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, that could be what we're doing for 2020, all right, buddy? I mean, that could be a huge thing because I think, I think direct injection, obviously you've seen all the car manufacturers go that direction because of efficiency. And with efficiency, also you get power out of it. If you can get the same power but get double the mileage, why not? Who's against that? And then also be able, now that we're so precisely controlling the timing, if we can precisely control the fuel as well, then you make even more more efficiency of a motor and can make more power too. Control the timing curve, the fuel, the fuel delivery. You know, I think it's uh, I think there's a market there. You know, yeah. And maybe you throw a test set of heads and see how it, see how it acts. That'd be it would be interesting to see. And if anybody out there that's listening works with any of the injection systems that could that could manipulate a direct injection. I'm sure if you got with Joe, Joe's got the heads and the machine equipment here to put a set of heads together and do a test motor. If you want to send them down a computer and see if you can control that, uh, control that injector, I think that'd be wild to do crank, to do some crank timing, uh, and uh, you know crank fire ignition and see if you couldn't get that thing to, to fire up. I mean that that, that would be huge, and that would be another that would be another innovation in the VW market again. Huh? You never know. We'll give it a try if somebody wants to work on it. Well, did you want did you want to give any uh, any shout outs to anybody while you're on the podcast here? Thank anybody that's been out there for you throughout all this time in the in the VW world or uh, anything you want to leave the VW people out there with. I I can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. Listen, uh, I tell you, Joe, it it was it was an honor to cruise. In a in an RV with you all through France and Belgium and all that stuff with you, me and my buddy Chris Cox. So uh, I, I know we both miss him. He's a great he's a great guy, and uh, we'll dedicate this podcast to him. Why not? And uh, I appreciate the opportunity that, that that I got to sit down with you. Well, I do. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's our interview with uh, Joe Horvath and uh, one of the one of the true unsung heroes and the legends in the VW scene. So until next week, guys, we'll talk to you later. Well, I hope you guys appreciate that podcast because I sure enjoyed doing it. Joe Horvath is one of the most uh, influential guys that's been in the scene. He's been around since the very beginning, and he's one of the living legends that's still around in our VW scene. So if you're in Hesperia, swing by Revmaster, check him out, get him to autograph something for you. He's just a great guy, and he's been around since the very beginning. So now we're on to the big news, and the big news is Vegas is back. The Las Vegas Volkswagen Club and Let's Talk Dubs are putting together the pre-weekend events for Corey Mack's big drag race on Sunday. So there's going to be a bunch of drag racers from all over the country coming out because this event is going to be huge. How huge, you ask? Well, it starts Thursday night. Thursday night with a meet and greet and then an 8 o'clock strip cruise that's going to happen on Las Vegas Boulevard. So if you've ever envisioned yourself cruising down Las Vegas Boulevard in your Volkswagen, you better believe we're going to have it escorted and rolling deep on the Las Vegas Strip. So if you can, drag your car down here. And if you guys are ready, book your flights now. The 15th through the 18th, it's going to be a nonstop VW event. Way more details coming up on the next podcast. Matter of fact, I might have George in here from the Las Vegas VW Club. And we're going to talk about all the details specifically, let you know how to get set up, how to get signed on, how to get wristbands for the weekend, because it will be a weekend-long event. So I'm excited to announce this to you guys. I hope you guys are getting pumped and preparing your October 15th through the 18th to come here to Vegas. So next week, R.K. Smith on the podcast, legendary. So your boy Bill T's bring it to you. Don't forget, as hard as I work on this podcast, get your butt on Apple iTunes, put up a five-star review, give some shout-outs, and get a shout-out 
on the podcast. So until next week, guys, later.